The countdown to you begins with me, dear Starman, when I wander dumbly deep into a space hospitable to hunger. Now all's desert, no milk in sight, just pitiful sand, which shushes as it slides through your hand to rejoin itself. From Radio Kismet, this is the American Poetry Review. I'm Elizabeth Stanley. I'm Stephen Kleinman. I'm Talia Geiger. And this is the American Poetry Review podcast. Today on the show, we'll be talking with poet Devin Walker Figueroa, a contributor to our September-October issue, who you just heard reading the opening lines from her sonnet sequence, Australopithica and Starman. We'll also discuss some recent events of poetic interest, the National Book Awards finalists, a Wave Books reissue we're excited about, and some more, some things about the language we hear around us every day. So this is our very first APR podcast, um, which is really exciting for us. I mean, Stephen and Talia and I work on the magazine together. Um, I mean, of course, I, Elizabeth, have been with the American Poetry Review for almost 20 years now, uh, which still sounds funny to me, but it's true. Uh, And uh, Stephen is our newest contributing editor. Um, And and when I when I started working with what's now us, (laughs) (laughs) I was just so excited about the prospect of this medium and getting to. share what we do with our audience in a different way. Absolutely. Credit where credit's due. Stephen mentioned to me first a couple months ago, he was like, why aren't we doing a podcast? And I was like, I don't know. Who would we... Who would we talk with? Because what would we talk about? Everybody needs another poetry podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and Talia is our editorial assistant and has been for yes, a few years now, and is such an amazing contributor to the whole project of our of our publication <laughs> as well. Thank you. I love being here, and honestly, a podcast was like a great idea. I was like, yes, I am on board. Let's do this. I am receiving an education as we do this, so uh, I'm. I feel like I'm in good hands with Stephen and. Talia and uh, yeah, let's get going. Sonnet nine. You're inside the future, a fossil played like a liar. I think you're like me, lonely passenger in this sky devoid of diamonds. Call me Lucy. Call me high or low, all turns truthful at the right remove. I admire your bravado and carriage, Starman, how you retire from orbit just to drive Mars mad. Like a note tied to a tongue, you hold on but aren't held. And emptied of the earth shadow you move through, you aspire to exit similitude. But I'm your likeness, and an interlude of asteroids lies ahead. We'll collide, allied time, 
Tremble in a treble, only troubled seraphs dare perceive. Six billion years, and every ostinato turns to torture, love, and lewd dance moves fade to forms of piety. I disassemble distance just for you, man, to humble these mean eons. Our guest today is Devin Walker Figueroa, who uh, serves as a co-founding editor of Horse Thief Books. Uh, Her poetry has appeared at the Harvard Advocate, the uh, Los Angeles Review of Books Quarterly, Plowshare, Ziziva, Lana Turner, many magazines. Uh, She is the recipient of a 2018 Emerging Writer Award from the New England Review. And it's really just such a pleasure to have you here today, Devin. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thanks for coming to join us in Philadelphia. Yeah, it's an honor. Um, to just to begin with, I I feel like I I've always want to ask poets as as much as I talk to poets, which as you can imagine is pretty much every day of my life. Yeah. Um, I really do always find it interesting to talk about how you arrived at poetry, because I mean I know that's a broad question, yeah. but it's one that interests me because as much as I love it, I accept absolutely that poetry is is still sort of an odd way to spend your time so i'm i'm curious about how you, how you got there yeah of course i mean and and also yeah it is odd you you're spending a lot of time alone but not alone in a way <laughs> and, uh, yeah so arriving at poetry for me i guess it's kind of hard for me to remember a time when poetry wasn't a part of my daily ritual and that you know i had a great mom who would read poems to me before I'd go to bed and all that. But actually when I... Poems like Shel Silverstein or poems like Shakespeare? Or mm, what like, was the, um, the mood of your house? The mood of my house. She loved Robert Frost. There oh. was a lot of Robert Frost. There was Shel Silverstein, um, Blake, Sarah Teasdale, oh. um, and... Keats, I mean, she, and the Shakespeare sonnets, but she'd sort of like dumb them down a little bit for me. (laughs) Like it it was sort of like her take on on the sonnets. Um, And then also just nursery rhymes, which are like so metered and rhymed. And it's like, they're some of the first poems we get to. But I guess in terms of like actually writing poetry, I... You were a homeschooled kid, right? I was a homeschooled girl, yeah. Um, So I wrote a lot of really bad poems when I was a kid, like, uh, (laughs) you know, mimetics of rhyme, the ancient mariner, and like (laughs) totally metrically, like precise, but terrible and cliched and derivative. And then, um, I mean, you know, maybe I'm still doing that. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But... I got really into ballet, and I moved to Houston when I was 15 to do work with the um, professional division of the Houston Ballet School Oh wow! and kind of get my foot in the door with their company. And I danced uh, pre-professionally and professionally for like five years and then was injured, and I had all this creative energy that I didn't really know what to do with it. It felt like I had lost a language, to mm. be honest. Like I couldn't yeah. um, couldn't really dance anymore. I'd had a hip injury. Um, mm-hmm. And I started writing poems. 
And I tried all these different forms after I left ballet. I tried sculpture and but poetry was the one place where I felt like I could really translate all of that creative energy. It really did feel like translation at first. And, and the first poet who really, the first two poets who made me really excited about that kind of, that sense of capturing movement, uh, like movement of mind and, and being able to put that on paper was Merwin and Jory Graham. And I still love them dearly. Absolutely. Um, it makes but all the yeah. sense in the world to me that you would be coming from a ballet background when we look at um, a, a sequence of poems like this poem that you've uh, read from today, or rather sequence, I should say, Australopithica and Starman. Um, where do we even begin, Talia? Do you, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm really mainly curious to know what the process was like writing this poem, because it seemed like it required a lot of research or really extensive knowledge and I wondered were these things just stewing around in your brain or did you have to like look up some things and just right, like what's no the point of notes? origin like this this sort of yeah. folding in of like all of these uh different sort of points in time sure um well I mean first of all I suppose it kind of began with Elon Musk launching a Tesla Roadster into outer space. Right. Mm -hmm. um, with a humanoid with, figure. Yeah, sitting right. strapped into the uh, <laughs> driver's seat. I mean, he, a quote from him is basically, I might get it a little bit wrong, but anything boring is terrible. And <laughs> he didn't want a boring, like, you know, set of concrete blocks strapped into the driver's seat. It was a theatrical choice. Absolutely. It was designed to capture the imagination. Yeah. Right? And, and theatrical in the sense, too, that he set it to music. Like, David Bowie's Space Oddity is playing on infinite loop in that roadster. And Wait a second. Really? It's infinite? It's, it's an infinite loop, supposedly. What's the power source for an infinite loop? I'm sorry, maybe that? I'm being too I mean, literal. until the infinite loop exhausts itself, right? Like, I'm sure the power source will be exhausted eventually. I can't That's imagine another poem. a battery that right. would have that kind of lifespan. Energizer, get on it. No, right, right. but yeah. Um, so that was maybe the catalyst for the fascination. But I also just, I love Sir Philip Sidney and Astrophil and Stella. It was obviously a, a substrate there as well. And I remember being in workshops when I was like in undergrad, you mm -hmm. know, where pe people were talking about Astrophil and Stella, like a teacher had brought it in and people kind of grieving over the absence of Stella's voice. It's like, oh, mm. you know, it's like, is she even real? And she just exists for the speaker's voice to like have a way of developing itself. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Like, what if you wrote a poem from the perspective of Stella, like star, and then of course Astro feels right. like star lover. What if you wrote a poem from her perspective, but she was not, you know, of the heavens. She was of the earth, like very earthly, like none more earthly really, yeah, right? than a fossil pulled out of the earth itself. Right. Remind us Australopithica, the yeah. Lucy character the Lucy of this, character. of this poem. 
Yes, she is based off of the um, Australopithecus afarensis fossil. Um, it was a forerunner to Homo sapiens sapiens to, found in the Awash Desert in like 1974, which, interesting note, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds mm-hmm. was playing on loop, which I thought was interesting, at the dig site really? all day really? when they dug up the fossil, and that is why she was called Lucy. Are you kidding me? I did not know that. I kid you not. Did you know that before you started writing, or did you find that in your research? I found that close to the beginning of the research. That is so cool. Yeah, yeah, close to the beginning of the research. And then I guess like to, uh, to finish answering your question, Talia, like I... It was an occasion to reread Astrophil and Stella, and mm-hmm. I guess at the end of the the day, I just I feel like reading is as creative of an act as writing. Like being able to read and just like immediately respond to that on the page, mm-hmm. it was pretty fluid. You know, right. it was like I had had my book open and I was reading and. I was thinking about, you know, Elon Musk and I was thinking about Sonnets to Orpheus, but that was the book that, you know, that was, that was a series of sonnets I had in front of me were right. uh, Astrophel and Stella. Hearing you talk about uh, Jory Graham earlier and um, and then, then hearing some of the background um, about Elon Musk just brings up in my mind some of the differences between poetry and business. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> Jory Graham is a poet I, I go to often and and I'm always surprised with the meaning that she can make out of things. Yeah. Right? That it's not um it's not preset. Yeah. That, that uh my favorite poem is Prayer, where she's looking over the um uh looking over the railing into the water at the minnows swimming around. Yeah. And uh and out of that comes a whole world which seems out of one many, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. right. Um, which which seems kind of like the exploration that that you've managed to do in this poem. Yeah, it's interesting too. Like that that image in that poem of the minnows sort of swarming in the water. There is something sort of. It feels like the beginning of like a universe or something. Like you're watching a world kind of be made from from there, and, um, and finding yeah. their finding their edge. Yeah. And having to come back against it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, and what you were saying about business and poetry kind of being, um, wh- what was it you said again about well, business Just the sense that, that Elon Musk had the whole world sort of created forever, right? The, yeah, the- yeah. And it's so funny because he also like, he likes poetry, right? So he like mm-hmm. names his machines after poems sometimes like there is a really so the there are these huge drills that he has for the boring company which yeah. are boring the tunnels under like los angeles and i believe one of the early ones was named proof dash rock like wow. proof rock you know <laughs> da, da, da. yeah um another one was named after devin you're giving me so song. much homework to do i love <laughs> it that there's like all of these things that i've never heard before that's crazy they're very odd um so you know like it just makes me want to like sit down and have a beer with elon musk and be like <laughs> hey elon so he, what do you Let's actually think of t.s Eliot? Right. yeah <laughs> you know another thing about this uh the sonnet sequence that we have in this issue 
that really caught my attention, and even more so hearing you read sections from it today, is that I feel like I have been seeing more and more a kind of engagement with the ideas about like, or the sounds of old English, or the sounds of um, language making, like remaking the language. I'm thinking most specifically of like Joe Charles's Field or yeah. Gabrielle Calvocaresi's Rocket Fantastic. I'm just, I'm curious, do you, f- do you feel or do you find that there was something going on for you in writing these poems that, that um, was responding to that, um, that sort of Beowulf uh, spirit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, yeah, it's fascinating to me the reasons, the various reasons that may be sort of underlying our return as poets to middle mm-hmm. English in mm-hmm. a way. Um, I, I love both of those poets, um, Joss and Gabrielle, both mm-hmm. amazing. Um, as an undergrad, I took old English classes and fell in love with it. Um, and I always kind of despised standardized spelling. <laughs> like, I really didn't like the idea. Like, I liked that you could inflect words differently based off of the kind of spellings that you had for them, uh, even in like Middle English, for right. for example. Um, I guess I'm curious, in part, like why now? Like why is it happening mm-hmm. now? Well, I, I, I don't have an answer to that. I'm, yeah. I'm honestly just it's on my mind because I it's so um, it's so evocative of of like a another moment in in our culture would be the wrong word like in in the development of language right yeah that i'm wondering like why um what is it about this moment in time that is that is bringing that forward in in writers well i don't have an exact answer but i can theorize about it a little That's, bit yeah <laughs> um for one i i think it's interesting that we're seeing spellings and like language morphing in ways to accommodate technology and swiftness of communication like mm-hmm. you look at the spellings people use in text messages or oh, right. emails and and like omission of vowels and there's so, suddenly like I, I think that in and of itself is sort of a reminder of the material plasticity of language okay. but also Very good. <laughs> yeah I mean also I think that language is evolving so rapidly because we have this way to transcend like geographical and cultural barriers all of a sudden so there's this rapid exchange of language and language sort of just like interacting with itself and it's (laughs) and with other languages and like english interacting not just with um you know spanish or japanese but also with it itself and it's that's right. It's a breath and the feedback. The feedback of the language that we are that we're all surrounded in. Yeah, and it's so it feels like these changes are happening really rapidly. It feels that way to me. Right. And I think maybe when we're up against like the future, we're sort of like imagining where the future is headed, we're looking back. And maybe f- trying right. to find a way to move forward in language by like finding something that's not just modern, but maybe even eternal. Yeah, yeah. By by looking back over our shoulders and right. finding where it came from. 
Thank you so much, Devin. This is so um, such a beautiful sequence of sonnets, and I'm, I'm really grateful to have you uh, here with us today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. What an honor to be part of the beginning <laughs> <laughs> in this talk about beginnings. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. So among other topics of interest to people like us who read poetry all the time, um, the National Book Awards long list recently, and then the finalists were announced just a couple days ago. And I really was so um, delighted with this list. I just think that all of these books are extraordinary. And it's such a a great collection of uh, of poets, uh, Jericho Brown, Toy Derricott, Ilya Kaminsky, Carmen Jimenez Smith, Arthur Z. These are all excellent books. I mean, it was a, a great year, a great year for it. Um, and also shows a, a real width and depth of poetry that it's not one generation. It's right. not one point in their careers. There's some mid career poets as well as some late career poets on the, on the short list. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. It's a very good list. <laughs> yeah. I, um, uh, I mean, of course we all have our, we all have our favorite passages here and there. I, um, I'm especially interested in Jericho Brown's book. I just think the tra the tradition is really lovely. And, and Jericho was on the cover of the November-December issue of APR last year. Uh, and we had a couple of those uh, those poems that he, the duplex, which is the form that he invented, um, which which I find fascinating. I think that it's, um, it's one thing to, you know, sort of set yourself the task of like inventing a form, but I think that Jericho really um, went the distance and uh, did did a whole series of them and and really explored that whole um, that whole style that he um, actually I'd, I'd really love to read a couple lines like the opening lines of one of his poems that was in APR if uh, if I may that's great um, the one uh, duplex called I begin with love um, I begin with love hoping to end there I don't want to leave a messy corpse I don't want to leave a messy corpse full of medicines that turn in the sun. Some of my medicines turn in the sun. Some of us don't need hell to be good. I won't read the whole thing, but I just wanted to demonstrate with those lines that the, the form that he is, that he's working in, that relies so heavily upon the refrain and the idea of the couplet and the, the repeated lines in a sequence, it just, it has such drama and such beauty to me. I, I mean, I, I'm inspired by it. That's great. I've, I've had the pleasure of hearing Ilya Kaminsky read twice, once at the Penn Book Center here in Philadelphia. Oh, and I missed that one. Yeah, it was great. And once in um, Vermont. And um, what's great about the, the reading of Deaf Republic is that, at least at the two readings I've been at, he has passed out a manuscript, uh, which is not the complete manuscript, but it's a, a big chunk and it's sort of like church service, so you can follow along. <laughs> you can follow along, and um, you can follow along, and he he reads like poem after poem after poem, and you have your own script that you're interacting with. That's great. Um, I thought that uh, it might be interesting to share Ilya Kaminsky's stories written in air, which was published in the American Poetry Review. Oh yeah, that was a few years ago. A few I, years ago. Yeah. So this is Stories Written in Air. 
In our avenues, election posters show various hairstyles of famous dictators, and I, at 53, having given up a thought of a child, I turn to my neighbors and shout, come here, come here, marvelous cretins. She just pooped on the park bench, marvelous cretins. Parenthood costs us a little dignity, thank God. Wind sweeps bread from market stalls, shopkeepers spill insults, and wind already has a bike between its legs. But when, with a laundry basket out in the streets, I walk, the wind is helpless with the desire to touch these tiny bonnets and hats. Every time I read this poem, I'm struck by the theatricality of it, Mm -hmm. which is really evident in hearing him read is almost like going to theater. Right, right. Which is great. It's almost comical (laughs) in the middle there too. So it's like hitting on different levels. He has a great great. sense of humor. Absolutely. Well, and there's a kind of slapstick to it too, like the idea of like, you know, behold, the baby has crapped. (laughs) (laughs) And and my beloved neighbors are marvelous cretins. That's who they are. It's really nice. I like it so much. Um, uh, Also, also... which is to say, I mean, we're excited about all of these National Book Awards finalists and congratulations to all of them. Um, I think it's it's uh, just such a, a wonderful year for it. So um, in other news, we uh, we were talking amongst ourselves about how Wave Books has reissued Bluettes, Maggie Nelson's uh, Bluettes. And um, uh, it's the 10-year anniversary. I can't believe it's actually been 10 years uh, that this book has... Uh, been with us, but I love it so much. Uh, I know Talia is a fan as well. Yeah, totally. I first encountered this book as a freshman in college. And as my young angsty self (laughs) coming into contact with this highly emotional book was like very eye opening. And it really just touched a part of my soul, which also feels great to go back to It feels different when you go back to this book. And I think that's one of its strengths where it's like, what is the saying of like stepping in the same river twice? You never step in the same river twice. (laughs) I might be paraphrasing Pocahontas there. But (laughs) that's like how this book feels to me where um, you can go through many different experiences and come back to it. And it's also philosophical. So you can just take some pieces of advice for whatever situation you're in. It's just really great book that way well that i mean that she wrote it in uh these 240 small sections Mm -hmm. um and that the process of composing it was in some ways a uh, a collage i mean a collage of her own work but that it was ordered and reordered many many times before it came into this final form i think is also instructive you know that that there's no uh that there wasn't one sort of predetermined path that became bluettes, um, but that it that it gelled in this in this final form is um, that we love so much. Um, do you have uh, favorite passages? I always I, I have always too many. <laughs> yeah, I know so many. My my copy is pretty uh, dog-eared as well. I I always uh, in my mind when I think about bluettes, there's so many things that I love about it. But one of the things that struck me upon that first reading was that it seemed so um, naked and revelatory to me that she was willing to talk about the process of 
saying that you're writing something without actually writing it or or like being in that like in-between place where you don't know if you're going to write it yet, um, which I think for writers and artists is so frequently a natural part of the fellowship application process or grant application process where you kind of have to come at the world with this idea of like, of course, I know exactly what I'm doing and which isn't necessarily so. And exactly who I am. Yes. At all times. And I'm ready to tell you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that she, uh, that she made reference to that a few times in this, in this book was uh, something that always stays with me. There's Um, There's a certain baldness to it. You know, mm-hmm. just just openness about how she writes about things, and I love how she does that with um, with emotion, and and so it never becomes sentimental because everything is is being explored. Right, and mm-hmm. I'm gonna just jump right into the first. The way it opens is incredible. Mm-hmm. So, suppose I were to begin by saying that I had fallen in love with a color. Suppose I were to speak this as though it were a confession. Suppose I shredded my napkin as we spoke. It began slowly, an appreciation, an affinity. Then one day it became more serious. Then, looking into an empty teacup, its bottom stained with thin brown excrement coiled into the shape of a seahorse, it became somehow personal. She just dives right in. There Mm -hmm. is that honesty and just the bareness that comes, and it stays throughout all of the 240 sections. I just say I'm really impressed with whoever your your freshman year teacher was who assigned <laughs> us to a to a group of um, you know freshly arrived yes. students. They were just like, we're gonna get into it. We're gonna go straight into bluettes. Like, good good on you, whoever that <laughs> professor was. Who doesn't love bluettes? I mean, I, I I feel that way too. So anyway, we're excited about that, and thank you, Wave Books, for doing that. This has been the American Poetry Review with Elizabeth Scanlon, Stephen Kleinman, and Talia Geiger. We'd like to thank our producer and engineer, Joey Sweeney. The American Poetry Review is a Radio Kismet podcast. For more about Radio Kismet, visit radiokismet.com or follow them on Instagram at Radio Kismet. And please follow us on Twitter and Instagram if you enjoyed hearing our voices. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. Thank you. 